Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's Word together. Glad that you are with us this morning. Hey, today is Monday. It is August 8th, and you may or may not know what that means, but what that means is we are starting a new semester of courses at the New Covenant School of Theology. It is an online theological training uh, institution, and uh, we would love to have you join us. It's not too late. You can still sign up. We start tonight the uh, Gospel and Epistles of John. So if you are interested, go to newcovenantschooloftheology.org. I know that's a mouthful. I'll, uh, I'll put a link in the description, newcovenantschooloftheology.org. If you haven't applied already, just hit apply and uh, fill out that short application, and we'll get back to you this afternoon, and you can join us. And if you miss a course, so we, we do Monday and Tuesday nights, uh, 5.30 to 8.30 Mountain Time, so it's live on Zoom. And uh, But if you miss one, we record them so you can catch up later on in the week or whatever. So... If you're interested in studying the Gospel of John with us starting this evening at 5.30 Mountain Time, we'd love to have you. Okay, so we're, we're studying here the, the book of Isaiah. And I told you on Friday that I kind of have a working hypothesis around these middle, these chapters 24, 25, 26, even into 27, because they tie into some things that we know from the New Testament. It speaks to our eschatology. Uh, there's, uh, so I, I told you I have a working hypothesis because there are stuff, there's some hard things here that I don't fully understand and I want to, and I know you want to, and some of you may have, uh, some, some, uh, better knowledge of this than I do and love to hear that. So we're going to kind of work through this. And, and, uh, if you know me, I like to know truth. I like to be able to articulate truth. I like to, to come to conclusions and it's, uh, it is humbling to come to this place where I have lots of questions and, uh, the answers are not quite as certain as other passages of scripture. I'll, I'll, actually give you an example of something I learned uh, just uh, after Friday's lesson here in a moment. Um, first, what I want to do is uh, go to, what do I want to do? Part of the part of the problem here is trying to figure out the best way to articulate all this and, and bring you along. I think I mentioned this on Friday. What I'm trying to do is kind of share out loud my hypothesis and the questions that I'm raising and bring you along with me and see together what we can sort out about this. So I want to catch the broader context of what we have seen in the last couple of weeks. Remember, starting in chapter 13, we have these oracles. Isaiah is seeing visions of uh, what God is going to do to the nations surrounding Jerusalem and he sees what God is going to do to his people in Jerusalem. So we, we have several examples of this. Let me, uh, let me remind you, show you. Isaiah 13, excuse me, uh, the oracle concerning Babylon. So Babylon, we know, uh, was, a, um, uh, was a rising force. Assyria was able to put them down for a while. And Assyria kind of conquered Israel, Judah, and most of the other surrounding nations. They were sort of the first big superpower around this time in the 6th, 7th, 8th centuries BC. Uh, but then Babylon, who was put down for a little while, they rose back up and they then became the domineering empire King Nebuchadnezzar. We know all of that. So Babylon here, Isaiah sees a, an oracle about the fall of Babylon. 
And we looked at that Babylon has fallen, that kind of thing. Then in uh, chapter 15, we have the oracle concerning Moab, another area, region, and God is going to bring them to their knees, so to speak. Uh, Damascus here in chapter 17, they'll become a fallen ruin, it says. Uh, Egypt, another big power, ties back to the original oppressor of the Jews. God pronounces a, uh, a destruction on them. And remember, we saw this language here. The Lord is riding on a swift cloud, which is not to be taken literally, but this is a way of describing the coming uh, judgment by God on Egypt. Uh, we've got some Assyria in chapter 9, 20, 21. Here's the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. And by the time we get done with the, this vision, we see that it is again Babylon that is in view. Uh, in the chapter 22 is the famous Valley of Vision. And we look at that, and this is more of God's narrowing in on Judah, Jerusalem, his people. And there's nothing in any of this context that I can see that uh, should lead us to believe that this has gone beyond Isaiah's time, give or take. I mean, within you know reason, within a couple hundred years here, not not all in, while he's alive, but he's seeing things that are coming down and uh, seeing that this is all going to happen to the Babylon and Moab and Egypt and, and Jerusalem of his day. At least that's the way I read it. Then we saw in chapter 23 here, the oracle concerning Tyre. And if you remember, that was interesting because God was going to humiliate them and their arrogance and all their wealth, this wicked city of Tyre. And then she was going to come back to life, so to speak. Uh, she was going to uh, regain her ability to be a harlot. That was the imagery used. She's going to sell herself, the city, Tyre is going to sell herself to the other nations and make money again by selling herself, meaning her wealth, Tyre's wealth was going to build up again. And then she was going to bring that wealth to the Lord, to the people of the Lord, interestingly. And then chapter 24 is where it gets very interesting, where it seems to narrow in again on Judah. Uh, we, remember, we talked all through this. Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste. And this word earth is Eretz, which is used in many places in Isaiah and other parts of the Old Testament for the land. And sometimes it's the land of Judah. Sometimes it's the land of Egypt. And so though... It's easy to read this out of context and think that this is talking about God's destroying the whole world. I'm arguing, at least uh, maybe I should say it less strongly, my hypothesis, my working hypothesis here is this is the, the Jerusalem and Judah and God's people, that land that he's describing devastation. The Lord lays the land waste, the land of Judah, devastates it, distorts it. The people will be like the priests. Remember, everybody's going to be treated the same way. And then we walk through this, that uh, Isaiah sees uh, this, this curse devouring them because they broke the laws. They violated God's statutes. They broke the everlasting covenant, which I take as the Sabbath. And if you missed that one, you'll have to go back and look at that one and see why. Um, the inhabitants of the land here, the Jews, are burned. The few men are left. New, mine, uh, new wine mourns. There's no more tambourine. There's no more uh, celebrating. The city of chaos, that'll be important here in a minute. The city of chaos is broken down. Now Jerusalem is called this 
uh, Tohu city. And you remember, Tohu is the word uh, from Genesis 1 where the earth was um, formless and void. And then the Spirit of God hovered over it, over it and he began to bring order to it. That's the same term he's using for Jerusalem. It's going to be just uh, chaotic and, and formless, devastated. Every house will be shut up so that none can enter. There'll be outcry, outcry in the streets. Desolation is coming for the city. The gate is battered to ruin. Um, and, and just a few will be left, like the, uh, the harvest time gleanings. Uh, they start shouting for joy. And uh, Isaiah says, whoa, whoa, don't, what's all the celebrating? I see the treacherous still are treacherous and God is going to take them out. So that's where we've been. And we settled, we, we finished up on Friday looking at this passage. So it will happen that in that day, okay, we're going to come back to this concept here in a minute. In that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of earth on the earth. And we, we looked at this, how interesting that is, that on that day, Isaiah sees God punishing angelic beings. That's the host of heaven here. Right? Isaiah sees this in the context of God destroying Jerusalem. He's going to punish the host of heaven. He's going to punish the kings of earth. And they, referring back to the host of heaven, uh, I think, will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon. They'll be confined in prison, and after many days, they will be punished. And again, we looked at that and how interesting that is, and that ties into other texts that talk about the angels being reserved in a prison until God decides to bring punishment upon them. So uh, after Friday or on Friday's uh, video, uh, one, of, one of the viewers here, Tim, posted a, uh, an interesting a couple of other verses that are interesting here that is worth looking at. So here's what he, what he said on the uh, YouTube video. He said a couple of verses that uh, may or may not help to add to the mix, the evil spirits in Matthew 8, and uh, he quotes it here, and then from Luke's version. So let's look at those um, passages real quickly. So in Matthew, uh, Jesus is encountering this man who is demon-possessed. And here it says, and they cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? So this is the demon speaking to Jesus, and they know he's the son of God. And they use this Hebrew idiom, uh, what between us, what, what between me and you kind of thing. Have you come to torment us before the time? Do you ever read that in the, in the gospels and think, what time and how did they know? Seems like there's a time coming for them. And they know. That, again, these are demons talking to Jesus. And they know there's a time coming. It seems to be a time of torment. And they're asking Jesus, you're, you're doing this early. Let that, let that sink in for a moment. These demons know that there's a time of torment coming for them and they think it's not yet. And they see Jesus casting out their buddies, <laughs> these other demons, and they say, what's going on here? 
are, are you doing this early? The time hasn't come. Now, how would they know this? Well, lots of possibilities, right? Could be that there are things that we don't know that they were told. Or could it be that the whole interchange and the vision God gave to Isaiah, they saw that too. They, they saw the writing. They Remember, Peter talks about these things that angels long to look into, talking about the gospel. Well, other angels are watching. Demons are watching. Satan's watching. Uh, I don't know. I just find that very interesting. Well, in Luke's version... Uh, it says this, seeing Jesus, so this is the same encounter, Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Why did he do that? For he, Jesus, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus asked him, what is your name? He said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. What's the abyss? Uh, and, And they knew he could do that and might do that and would do this. This is the same kind of terminology we see in Revelation 20. Oh, man, this whole thing gets uh, very interesting. So thanks, Tim. Thanks for, I don't know if you're with us today, but thanks for uh, drawing that uh, our attention to that. That's uh, other texts similar to the ones we looked at in, in Peter and Jude of just these strange things going on. Um, and this appears to be at least in the same zip code, if not uh, directly related to this Isaiah 24 here, they will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon, confined in prison, and after many days they will be punished. So Isaiah sees this and the demons knew it was coming. Very, uh, very interesting uh, to me. Uh, Dale says, um, uh, what are your thoughts on the idea that earth is more than just Israel and the covenant is the Noahic? Hmm. Well, I don't see anything in this text uh, that would tie to the Noahic covenant. So do you have some verbal links there that, uh, that I'm missing? Um, the earth could be more than just Israel, certainly. And I, I do want to always say the New Testament must be our interpretive grid for the Old Testament. So uh, I fully believe that. Uh, the full revelation, Jesus is the full revelation of, of everything. And all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. And, and Jesus is the one who said, Moses wrote about me, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, everything is about Jesus. So I'm not in any way discounting what the New Testament tells us about all of this. What I'm trying to do is help us better understand what the New Testament reveals about all these things by having a clear view of what the Old Testament said and then turning to the New Testament. Because what I have found in my own study and in teaching Christians for 25 years and talking to Christians, there are a lot of people 
who just who who grab verses and have their systems of theology and they're convinced of their conclusions, but when you ask them to show how the the broader context proves their conclusion, they can't do it. And especially that's true when people come to a passage that quotes the Old Testament and they say, "Well, this is what this is what is is meant here by Paul or whatever." I say, okay, well, he quoted the Old Testament. Show me from the Old Testament how that is contributing to his conclusion here, the New Testament, and they can't do it. So I don't want to be guilty of that. I want to have as thorough an understanding as I can of the Old Testament setting, then let the New Testament quote those and and and, and reveal the the full meaning there, and see if I can help them under help them uh, harmonize because I don't believe that the New Testament authors just grabbed random verses that happened to say the right things to make a point that was unrelated to the Old Testament. In other words, I think as the New Testament reveals the, the full uh, fulfillment of the Old Testament passages, there is a connection that, that it, it's, it's not random or arbitrary, but it's, it's a legitimate um unfolding of what was there in the Old Testament. I hope that makes sense. Dale says, my potential thinking is that some of the language seems bigger than Israel uh, and the Noah. Yeah, so I, I hear that and I agree that it does seem that way until, uh, at least the argument I've been trying to show is it all fits very well, in my opinion, currently. And again, this is all a working hypothesis. So I appreciate the, you know, the pushback. I just, I want to, I want to keep, I'm going to keep pushing you back to the immediate context and then see if the New Testament requires us to grow broader. So far from my understanding, Isaiah does not require us to go uh, broader. Um, and, I, and when you say the Noahic covenant is what they could have broken, what are the terms of the Noahic covenant? What is required of man in the Noahic covenant that somebody could break? I, I'm not sure that I see that. Uh, Dale says it comes after Tyre. Isaiah is ultimately talking to Israel, so they may be uh, currently. Yeah, yeah. We're I, I appreciate that. We're all in the brainstorm age here, and it's it's good to uh, think that through. Uh, so let me um, let me come back to Isaiah here for a moment. And at the end of twenty four that we looked at on Friday. So the prisoners are in the dungeon, which I take to be the angelic beings. They're confined. Uh, they will be punished after many days. Then it says the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. Why? So the, the, we talked about that, right? The glory of the moon and the sun is ashamed because, for here, the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and, and in Jerusalem. So interesting, we have sort of a time reference that uh, there's a uh, this punishment is coming and this imprisonment is going to last uh, until this time when the Lord of Hosts is reigning on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, which we've already seen this language. We've seen it, for instance, in Isaiah two, where the the mountain of the Lord and the house of the Lord uh, will rise up as the chief of the mountains. We saw this um, in uh, in Isaiah nine where the Messiah, the child, is, is born and he will reign from uh, on this throne of David and that kind of thing. So when the Lord is reigning on Mount Zion, his glory is going to be so brilliant that the, uh, the, the glory of the moon and the sun are going to be ashamed. 
and his glory will be before his elders. So here's something that I discovered on Friday. I don't know how many of you caught this, but as I was teaching, I referenced something in Exodus. And as I was reading it to you, what I was reading and the point I was trying to use it for, there was some disconnect in my head. And, and so I, I kind of quoted it and made a reference and I moved on because I, I didn't want to just drag you along in my my momentary lapse of un, like understanding. Well, why did I pull this out? This doesn't seem to say what I thought it was going to say and all that. So I moved on to the next part. So when that happens, I, I don't like to just blow over that. So I went back and looked at this passage and I saw something I've never seen before. Uh, just interesting. So again, the context here is the Lord of hosts is going to reign on Mount Zion and he's going to be before his elders and they are going to see his glory, which just is fascinating, kind of out of nowhere. We, uh, we have the Lord punishing the host of heaven and the kings on the earth. We have... Uh, them being gathered together, imprisoned until the time of punishment. We have his glory as he reigns being so brilliant that the sun and moon are ashamed and elders are going to see it. Now, interesting that we see glory and elders brought together in the book of Revelation, but we also see it in Exodus, uh, in Exodus 24. So, God gives the Old Covenant to the Jews, the Ten Commandments, the original um, uh, invoking of this covenant between God and the Jews. And Moses sprinkles blood on, on the altar and so on to, uh, to seal it. I think we looked this. So this is Exodus 24. Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So this is the inaugural establishment of God's covenant with Israel. He sprinkles it all with blood. Now look at this. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and, the sev and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. I had never seen this before. What? Do you see why this grabbed my attention? Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the seven and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. Can somebody explain to me why I am rather astounded by that statement? Let me give you a moment while I'm waiting to see if anybody also is astonished. Let me see what Dale followed up here with. Breaking no. Breaking the Noahic covenant may be found, possibly murder, injustice, maybe something to do with eating blood, too vague. Yeah, maybe, although those are not really, I don't, I don't think the verbiage there is of those being terms of the covenant. Seems like the Noahic covenant is simply God, it's a, it's a promissory, promissory covenant of God saying, I'm not going to destroy the world with a flood of water again. And it's, it's just kind of a one-sided covenant. I'm not sure I see anything in that narrative that says man is required to do anything, unlike some of the other covenants. But interesting. Yeah, it's, it's worth pondering. All right. It's nobody. Uh, yeah. So Dale's getting there. Similar. No one has seen Father. Remember, over and over again, God says, no one can see my face and live. 
Moses was given sort of a unique relationship with God to see him. He put him in the cleft of the rock and, and he could only see his backside and, and all that. I don't know why I had never caught this before, but Moses goes up, which we're kind of used to. Aaron goes up with him. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, go up with him. And 70 elders go up with him and they saw God. I don't know how I've never seen that before. And under his feet, under God's feet, remember we talked about this, all this is metaphor. God doesn't actually have feet, but they see this vision of this, this, this theophany. Under his feet, there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. So this is a, this is, this is no ordinary earthly encounter. Uh, you see what I mean? I mean, this is, again, there are, there are reminiscences of Revelation and some other passages where they encounter God in some form and, and he has this, this road, this pavement, the, the, that's this precious stone. And it says, yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the son of Israel and they saw God and they ate and drank. I've read Exodus, I don't know how many times. I never caught this. At the establishment of the covenant, God brings up the elders of Israel, the high priest, his sons, and Moses. They see God. They see him in this theophany. They see this, this majestic scene. And God did not strike them dead, even though they are in his presence. And they had a feast. So what's the connection? Why am I emphasizing this? Because there's at least some, some loose parallels here, and I'm trying to see if there's any, uh, any similarity. So let me throw this out to you, and then I see our time is already up. Um, so we have this whole business, judgment on the land, the angels, the demons, uh, the Lord reigning, and his glory outshining the sun, and he's his glory was with his elders. So that's, that's the tie into what I just, uh, so that we've already had a scene where the elders are in the presence of God seeing his glory there in Exodus. And now uh, this vision that, that Isaiah sees that his elders are experiencing his glory. And then there's this outburst of, of praise, which is going to lead to a passage very familiar to us from the New Testament and we will have to hold off now and see if we have, see when we can get to it tomorrow or the next day. But here's the outburst of praise. Oh, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. So we have a, a personal, a personal, an individual, Isaiah, somebody proclaiming God's wonders here. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name. Why? For you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. We're going to come back to that in a moment as a setup for tomorrow. So he's exalting God because he's, he's seen the wonders of God planned long ago. What are, what's the result of God's plan? You've made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. All right, so to sort of tip my hand as to where I'm going tomorrow. Do you know what city I think this is? 
He's already talked about a city in chapter 24, and indeed throughout a lot of this. It's going to be destroyed and not rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. And here in the English, this is cities. This is in the Hebrew, it's singular. A city of ruthless nations will revere you. For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall, like heat in drought, You subdue the uproar of aliens like heat by the shadow of a cloud. The song of the ruthless is silent. So he keeps proclaiming the glory of God because he's protected somebody from ruthless nations, a ruthless storm kind of thing. And then this, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all his peoples on the mountain or on this mountain. So in Exodus, it was just Moses, Aaron, Aaron's sons, and the elders who got to feast with God. Here Isaiah sees a lavish banquet for all peoples. And it'll be a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow, refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering, which is over all peoples. Even the veil, which is stretched over all nations, he will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of of his people from all the earth, for the Lord God has spoken. So there it is. There's the passage we know from 1 Corinthians 15, swallowing up death for all time. We know how Paul uses it. Well, we think we do. <laughs> do we? <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out what's the, what is this, how does this vision fit in the immediate context? And then why does Paul use it? So we're going to come back tomorrow and look at the setup, that, that phrase that this, this destruction of the city that was planned long ago. What is that talking about? Is this the Noahic, as Dale hypothesizes? Is it the end of time? Those are some of the questions we're trying to sort out here. All right, our time for today is up. Uh, you're probably frustrated because all I did was ask questions, didn't answer anything, but work through this, read through it. Look at look at 1 Corinthians 15. How does Paul use this text? And you may think you understand 1 Corinthians 15, but look at it now with a new eye and see if there's anything that, any questions that you raise, you think, hmm, maybe I don't understand that so well. And come back and see if you can fit into this context, and we'll keep working uh, away at this together. Have a great day in the Lord, and uh, Lord willing, we will continue this dialogue tomorrow. Take care.